Kiwi late. It's going to be close here. Kiwi's going to beat them all with a mighty run. Driving lane races up the Manufique, takes the lead in the cup. Out wide is Guns in Stormy Seas, but Piping Lane's going to win the cup. But it's Doremus nicely clear in the Melbourne Cup. He's got the cup run. He's holding nothing like a Dane, and Doremus wins the cup. Rain Lover and Allsop, they're going head and head. Rain Lover on the inside. Rain Lover's got his neck in front and won by a neck. Champagne and Jezebel. Champagne, Jezebel fighting back. Jezebel, Champagne, they hit the line. Jezebel wins the cup from Champagne. But a champion becomes a legend. McCarty Deaver has won it. American Trevian. Celebrating Australia's greatest race, the history of the Melbourne Cup. Pelion coming from the clouds on the outside, rising fast is too far in front, however, and in the run of the boat, rising fast, going to win the Melbourne Cup by two legs from Helion. My fingers goes to Zima, they hit the line locked together. Dead eat! A dead eat in the Melbourne Cup, Zima and Light Fingers. Rain Lover's eight lengths in front, going further away, and Rain Lover wins the Melbourne Cup by ten lengths. Here's Brian Martin. Hello and welcome to the history of the Melbourne Cup and when we go back 20 years, can you believe it, 20 years to 1999, it was a result like no other. We've said that so many times about the Melbourne Cup. Bart Cummings got his 11th Melbourne Cup with Rogan Josh, the lady who owned the horse has a remarkable story to tell. So we're going to go up to the school in Gympie now at St Pat's College and Wendy Green joins us. Hello Wendy, how are you? Good, thank you. Great to have you aboard, and can you believe it's 20 years ago since that day at Flemington? It's been a while, and um, I certainly feel that a lot's happened in the last 20 years, but it's still a a dominant memory. Wendy, let's go back uh, and track back about uh, how it all began with Rogan Josh. It all started back uh, at a stud farm. Was it your parents who, who actually bred the horse back there in WA? It was my father who bred the horse, mm-hmm. and um, they didn't have a stud farm. He was just a, a, a bush trainer, and he'd um, come home from the Second World War, and uh, he didn't particularly want to be a farmer. He said that he had um, great ambitions to breed um, good horses, and he was a very, very good judge of a the bloodline. They didn't have computers back then. And he had a theory that every sixth generation, if you really um, chose your bloodline well and bred back into that bloodline, then um, through the mares, he always bred through the mares and the blue peter line, that you would throw a champion. And a lot of the old um, horsemen, the the ones who know their stuff, um, will tell you that uh, six generations of really selective and clear breeding back into that bloodline will throw a champion. And Rogan Josh was the sixth generation of his post-war program. And that year they threw three champions, um, Machine Gun Tom, Rogan Josh and Corporate James. Gee, fantastic horses, particularly in WA. But one actually went uh, higher on the mountain and that was uh, right to the very top, to the Everest uh, mm. in, in this uh, horse, Rogan Josh. The property was 220... 220- went to the... Oh, yeah, he didn't go to the Everest. No, but I mean to the peak, to the peak of racing. Yeah. Um, 220 k's out of the south of Perth uh, was the property at Capel. Is that correct, where your brother actually worked with, with Dad? Um, my father had a little... Um, uh, urban block there, about two acres, and that was where Rogan Josh was born. Now, he was by Old Spice. Yeah. Uh, by Old Spice out of Eastern Mystique. And so, Eastern Mystique was one of my father's 
you know, mares that he had bred into that, that generational line. Mm. Now tell us about the naming uh, of Rogan Josh, the, uh, the Indian dish. Um, yes, after the cup, a lot of people rang me up and said they'd named a curry after him, and I was really um, <laughs> uh, serious about um, uh, telling them not that I uh, thought that he was named after a curry. Um, Dad being a bit old-fashioned, when I ended up with the horse and I got to name him, he said, and of course you just, uh, you had to submit three names, he said, you're going to have to do what's very traditional and, and make the name fit the breeding. So I said to Robert, how are we going to do that? And he said, I don't know. I said, we'd better go and have a look at the spice counter down at um, uh, Coles in Darwin and see what we can come up with. And we came up with three names and they gave us Rogan Josh. <laughs> so what what were the other names? Vindaloo or what, what else? Uh, it was um, Tandoori Trader and Vindaloo and um, the, the Rogan Josh one. Now, so when did you get to, to Perth? Because you're, you're teaching at, uh, at the school in Perth at Darwin's Casarina College. Um, so did you sort of then get the, the, uh, the share? Did you share uh, in, in the horse at that stage? Um, I, uh, yes, my brother, well, actually, it was my name on the papers and I understood that I'd bought the horse. But after a protracted um, uh, uh, engagement and relationship there, I ended up giving my brother half shares, which he later um, sold back to me. And the, and the horse, your dad always believed, your dad always believed the horses needed time and uh, that's a great philosophy that some of the wonderful horsemen that we've seen down through the years have, have always gone by. And, and Rogan Josh actually didn't get to the racetrack till he was four years of age. That's correct, but I think um, family feuding might have had a bit to do with that too. <laughs> okay, so your brother wanted to sell, is that correct? Or what, how, how did that come about? Uh, yeah, oh, he... Um, he wanted to train the horse and I, and he wanted to, you know, do the West Australian circuit. He, he had ideas of winning a Broome Cup and I had ideas of winning a Melbourne Cup. So we really just parted ways. But he um, said that uh, he, he was really, really upset and really angry. And I said, well, the only way we're going to get there is if we take it to a trainer in Perth and, you know, see what we can do in Perth. And that was really the pro protracted disagreement that saw Rogan Josh off the uh, course for quite a while. And, and Colin Webster, who was a very prominent trainer at the time, he uh, took over the, uh, the preparation of the horse? Yes, he did, and he came second in the Perth Cup, which gave us the status to um, nominate for um, a Melbourne Cup. Uh, was Bart Cummings at that Perth Cup that year? Yes, he was. And so he would have seen the run? Yes, he said it, he thought that um, when the message um, got back to him that uh, I'd like him to be the trainer, he said, uh, yes, you make a good welder horse. A good welder horse. And so how did that sit with Colin Webster? Was was Colin happy to see the horse come east? Um, he facilitated it, really. We were going to go to Chrissy Lee's in New South Wales, but... Um, they said, well, seeing you've got this crazy idea about winning a Melbourne Cup, you could better see if Bart Cummings will take him. But no one knew how to approach Bart Cummings. And Colin had been there with um, another horse. He'd been racing over East the year before. Young Colin had been there and they'd leased a couple of stalls off Bart. And Nigel Blackiston was known to them. And so they said, look, we'll approach Bart 
through Nigel and see if Bart will take the horse. And then it came back down the line that, yeah, he'd take this welter horse from Perth. He thought it might have a bit of ability in the east, but not to get too excited about it. <laughs> and, and it was meant to happen because then there was that connection because you met Bart. Was that right for the first time when he came to Darwin? Uh, yeah, the first time I met Bart um, was when he came up to the Darwin Cup that year and uh, he that was the first time I'd spoken to him. He contacted us and asked us if we could take him out to dinner. <laughs> and you did? We did, we did. There was a lot of stories about um, taking Bart out to dinner, but um, we uh, went to the Trailer Boat Club and uh, everyone sort of, gathered round and looked through the window and and waved to Bart and Bart waved back to everyone and he we told him everything we knew about the world and he then promptly told everyone everything we knew about the world from his own perspective and as he was leaving that night he said, you probably got um, a very good spring chance in my stable as we speak. Gee, that's interesting. And you picked him up actually, he and Valmay from the hotel and, and took them to the, the boat club. That is correct. In a little car, is that right? No, no, we didn't. Um, we had to. Um, we only had a Ute, and we asked um, <laughs> the son-in-law if we could borrow his snappy little um, Ford, which was a, a bit of a flash car. And he said, "Only if I can come in and meet him." And uh, so we um, exchanged the Ute for the car, and we picked him up in that. And how was dinner? It, oh, it was good. Good pub tucker. <laughs> He talked a lot about, um, oh, Bart was really interesting. Bart didn't like to talk a lot about um, racing as mm, such. Mm. Everyone seems to think, you know, like he, he loved his horses and he loved telling his stories about that. But he also loved to know what was going on in the world and he loved stories about people and and wherever he was, he, he got very excited if you, you know, could point out a local or tell him a bit of the history behind that local or a story mm. that had happened in that place. And, of course, he was a great yarner and he loved boats. And he said to me, to Robert, what sort of boat have you got? And Robert looked at me and said, sorry, Bart, we're between boats. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he was terrific. And, and Because Darwin's such a gorgeous place to come from and, it's such a, a last frontier that he he really reveled in it. And, he, you know, we took him lots of places and showed him lots of the old stories and the war history. So we had um, a much more interesting um, meeting with Bart, um, the complete fellow. And then, of course, we hardly talked about our horse. Yeah, you're exactly Except right. The throwaway comment. Yeah, and you're right because in conversation which I've had over the years with Bart, he'd be more interested in what you were doing, but also different things as you say, different aspects of life. And uh, and I used to love talking to Bart about his father because he he'd always refer to his father, his yeah, Jim, yeah. and uh, who trained the, the comic court, the great comic court that Bart yeah. scrapped. But he'd talk about when his dad was uh, preparing horses and they were coming down the, the middle of Australia and racing at the, the, the picnic meetings and they'd bring a string of horses and they'd ride them and, and stop That's at different right. places. And, and Bart would, was, was more interested about the stations that they'd stop at and, and life back there uh, than sort of present-day racing. Oh, yeah, he really was. And he loved the names and things like that of the different places. And, yeah, he was really interesting. I, I had a lot of fun with Bart and um, I went a lot of places with him after we won the Melbourne Cup and he was always um, 
really, really keen to know what you knew about the place. And then, of course, you'd hear him telling everyone else what you'd uh, told him. He always thought I was really clever. <laughs> and he called my son, John Paul, he called him the genius. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah. And, and Wendy, when, when, was the sort of, when were you getting the vibes that maybe the horse was going to make it to the Melbourne Cup, let alone win it? But when, when was the feeling there? Um, I well, I never didn't believe that it was. I always believed that it was going to happen. It was always a, why was that? There, was, I don't know. I went to Manfred down at the markets, and Manfred told me it had happened. So I just believed him. Sure. That's amazing, and and and, and the path. So. But because I recall the horse, I think he ran in the JRA Cup at Mooney Valley, and he finished down the track, and there were, a lot of people were disappointed. Um, do you recall that that night meeting? Yeah, I, I do. Um, but we weren't on the course that night. No. We listened to it in um, uh, Darwin, and I did. Um, uh, I rang the stable, and I said I was really disappointed. That was. Actually, that was before we'd met Bart, oh. and um, he didn't. Um, Reg gave him the um, the uh, message, and he um, uh, rang me back the next morning. And um, uh, as one of the kids came running out, and they said, "There's a Bart Cummings on the phone." I was going to school, and I came in, and I said, "Oh, Bart!" He said, "I got your message. Did you lose your house, or did someone stay in your house because you gave them a bad tip last night?" <laughs> And um, I said, no, nothing like that, but I was a bit disappointed. I said, disappointment and champagne don't go too well together. And he said, oh, well, he said, you've got to be a good loser before you can be a good winner. And he said, I think you're a really good loser. Uh, yes. Yeah, I remember uh, relating that story recently on this program with Joey Agrester, and he, he told the similar story. He said that Bart rang you and said, you do your dough or something like that. So uh, it's interesting. But he had great faith, and you obviously had great faith that uh, the horse would still come through. Yeah, I I never didn't. I never had any worries about um, what we were doing. But of course, all the West Australians thought we were lunatics. And my father said, "You can't take a horse to the eastern states because we just don't take horses across the Nullarbor and um, think that they're going to win Melbourne Cups." And I said, "Well, I'm going to have a crack at this one." Well, it's interesting because uh, Godolphin had arrived and they had a, a champion stayer at the same time, so he'd been Saror was here with Godolphin with a horse called Kaif Tara, who was the, yeah, the best stayer over there in uh, in Europe. And he'd won the Irish St. Ledger by nine lengths. And the message was that he only had to turn up on the day and Kaif Tara would, would win. But we know with the Melbourne Cup. He went a miss. Yeah, he, went, he did a suspensory ligament. So he was in the paddock the day the Melbourne Cup was run. And they had a second stringer here called Central Park who eventually got to the Melbourne Cup with Frankie Dutori and started 50 to 1. But we'll get to the race shortly. Uh, but then, the, then the, the passage in time of coming through in those preparatory races like the Caulfield Cup and the McKinnon, uh, the Caulfield Cup, from memory, was a good run. It was a brilliant run. He should have won it. They went out wide. Oh, uh, uh, Monkey Months took him out wide too early and he probably ran an extra 15 lengths up that hill and um, he got a stitch. Yeah, yeah, he he did, but uh, he was still on target, although he was seven years of age, but we remember he didn't start till he was four, so he only had three seasons of racing. And then from the Caulfield Cup, Bart always had the belief that you had to run uh, on Derby Day, and you went to the McKinnon Stakes at Wait for Age. Yes, we broke the track record that day, and we he won at 16 to 1, and he, the, the, yeah, 
And um, he was never going to lose after that race. But said he, he can't lose. When you look at the cup weights, the Melbourne Cup that particular year, the weights came out in September of 99. Of the 50 horses weighted at 52 kilos or more, 28 of those were trained in the Northern Hemisphere. So the Raiders were coming in abundance. Um, the top weight originally was Netaway with 58.5. It didn't come here. It was injured before it left uh, with Cave Tara. And then Tyler Knott was on 58. And there was uh, Rogan Josh. He was going to drop from the weight for age he carried on Derby Day in a brilliant win in the McKinnon, dropping down to 50 kilos on Cup Day. Extraordinary. Yeah, that, uh, but that was the magic of Bart Cummings, wasn't it? That's mm. how he did it. So, and uh, he um, said, and we left, came down on the Thursday after school and he rang me in the car. I had a car phone and he said, um, you're ready for the cup. And I said, but we haven't even got a start yet. And he said, oh, you'll start at number 17. And he did. He started at number 17. Yeah, incredible. And uh... it was incredible. He said, where are you? I said, I'm at Humpty Doo. He said, Humpty, where? <laughs> <laughs> what do you do? And you drove from the top of Australia from Darwin to Melbourne. Yeah, that's true. How long did that take? Oh, if you um, if it's two up driving a day and a half, it doesn't take long once you if you're in the swing of it. But if you do it as a tourist, it can take a long time. It took a lot longer than a two days to come back. It took three months, but going it only took a day and a half, I think. <laughs> and and your dad and, and and mum and the family were there on Cup Day. They, um, my mum and dad flew over from Perth, yes. And, and your dad had been in poor health, hadn't he, going back over a period of time? Yes, that's right. And he, he made it to the to the Cup. What what did he say to you once you actually got there to be running in the Melbourne Cup? Did he say anything to you, do you remember? Not a lot. He was pretty crook. He went and sat out with the horse and, you know, met a few old um, timers from Perth that were out there sitting with the horse out before they saddled up, and um, the VRC were really, really kind. They let Mum and Dad up into the um, committee room uh, to watch the race. So, you know, the VRC have always been a really um, terrific uh, support for me. Fantastic. Uh, how were you feeling after the, the, the great win on Derby Day? How did you get through the Sunday? And, of course, we have the Melbourne Cup Parade, and the city goes wild. It's, there's, you know, there's nowhere in the world the way that we celebrate the Melbourne Cup and the lead-up to it. Were you, uh, were you settled? Were you OK? Yeah, we were a bit ambivalent. We thought, well, we've got this far. We, um, you know, we did all the things that you usually do in Melbourne. We went back to um, Flemington for the second time in our lives on Cup Day, and we found our way around, and uh, we, um, when the horse jumped, I suppose, that was the most exciting part because... Um, we looked at each other and said, well, we're there. You know, mm. we never, we've, we've started in a Melbourne Cup. I, I don't think that we were um, as hysterical or as um, uh, yobbish as uh, a lot of people tried to make out at the time. Um, and we certainly, um, you know, realised the significance of the event and, and our part in the, the event. It's uh, it's an amazing day, um, and I, I would suggest you you never get used to uh, the race unfolding the way the way it does. But fifty kilos, and the putters were right on onto your horse because he was he was backed into five to one because of that uh, that drop in 
uh, weight from the weight for H. And Sky Heights was the favourite at seven to two, and he got a hammering down the straight. He kept hitting the running rail. There was horses leaning on him. Oh, it was a roughly run race, that's for sure. It was, and we're going to throw to the race now, and I know, I know know the race well. I I called it uh, back in that, that, that year. And the place getters were Central Park second at 50 to one, Frankie Dettori. And then a dead heat for third between Lahar and Zazabil. And Bart prepared Zazabil, and it was 50 to one, and Lahar was 140 to one. So you were most fancied. When did you actually think that you're a great chance of winning this marvellous race as, as the race built up coming to the turn? You could watch him on the big screen. How were you feeling at that time? When they took him to the front, I knew we were right because there was a big debate whether they'd ride him back or ride him forward and they wanted to ride him back. And I give uh, Johnny Marshall a lot of credit for what happened on that day because everyone else, um, you know, tells their stories. But I really liked Marshall's style and he was a West Australian too and my dad knew his dad and he was his dad was actually killed on the course in Bunbury pretty much like... The Oliver boy's dad was mm. killed in Kalgoorlie. Yes. And um, when uh, Bart legged him up, he said to him, I don't have to tell you how to ride this or read this race, John. He said, all I say is ride him like a star and don't touch him till he gets to the clock tower. And um, he also said to him, make your judgment from the wide alley. And it was Marshall that took him across. Yeah. And I think a lot of people were pleased that he did, but initially the stable was saying right from the back, and yeah. that would not have worked. What a change of tactic, and how important with only 50 kilos. This is the Cup. It was Bart's 11th, but uh, more importantly this morning, it was Wendy Wendy Green and, and her partner in racing um, taking out this uh, this amazing race 20 years ago with Rogan Josh. Central Park being tackled by outwider Rogan Josh and Zazabel. Under pressure, the message travel mate behind those. Sky Heights is under the whip, back about ninth, followed out wider by Ty the Knot. It's Central Park, the Warrior getting up on the inside from travel mate, behind getting a run, and Rogan Josh is there with Zazabel. No Sky Heights today. Central Park, Rogan Josh, travel mate Zazabel coming at them. It's Central Park, the leader Rogan Josh coming out after him. It's Central Park and Rogan Josh. Central Park, Rogan Josh. Bart's got his 11th. Rogan Josh wins the cup from Central Park. So, Wendy, there it was. Uh, what an exciting time. Frankie DeTore thought he was home on Central Park. Uh, what, it must have been euphoric uh, once, the, once your horse flashed past the line. Once he hit the clock tower and he gave him that whack with the whip, we knew that we had it. Yeah. That's when we got a bit euphoric. <laughs> and um, But uh, DeTore had been promised the purse, all the um, Godolphin wanted was the uh, cup yeah. and he was I don't know who it was that said it to me afterwards but he said um, you'll never win another cup, uh, Melbourne Cup Wendy Green and I said mate I don't have to right. <laughs> and Godolphin couldn't until last year so it's taken them a yeah, while he but... died didn't he, he died that Christmas on the Gold Coast I think that's right, that's exactly right and, and what about um, the celebrations, uh, the presentation does that do those memories come back to you still? They do, and it was really exciting. But we were a bit bewildered because I don't think because we weren't Melbourneites, we weren't, um, you know, we'd never been to a Melbourne Cup before. We'd never been to Flemington before. We'd listened to largely all our racing on the radio, or been to a lot of um, to the Perth races, the Adelaide races, things like that. But we didn't know that it was. Um, 
such an over-celebration, if, if you like, and, and we didn't really know what to expect and we didn't really know what we were going to do with this gold cup in this big um, Jarrah case that we now had to take somewhere because we'd won it. And the VRC were really the ones that um, staged managed it because they could see that we didn't have a bloody clue what we were doing. <laughs> and Bart, Bart, you told Bart you were driving down on the Holden, coming down to Melbourne for Derby Day and Cup Day, and he said you'd be going home in a Rolls Royce. Is that right? He did say that. He did say that, yes. <laughs> it didn't happen. You went home in the Holden. How long did it take you to get back to Darwin? The story goes that it took three months, so I'm not going to dispute that. <laughs> and I must ask you about the tale of stopping at one of the uh, the coach stops uh, where you met um, one of the local ladies who, who'd had a child. Tell, please, please relate that story. It's a beauty. Um, well, it, actually, they say it happened at Tennant Creek, but it really happened at Mataranka. We went in to see the bloke who owned the Mataranka pub because he was our mate, and he'd been done over... Um, in uh, Darwin, um, he should have won a Darwin Cup and he didn't. And so we had a drink with him and I came out and there was all these um, Indigenous people of whom, having been a um, distance um, ed teacher, I recognised one of the girls who wanted to have a, a look at the cup and a go with my shoes and my hat and everything else. And um, they said, hey, why don't you um, bring it over and show our countrymen? Well, you know, like in Melbourne, this is all fabulous cultural stuff, but in fact it was just a, a, a real um, big piss-up under the um, the big tree there. I've got a picture of the tree, actually, and um, they were having a um, really good celebration and singing and clapping their, um, their, the seeds of the big tree, uh, you know, together to make the sounds, and then they all had a bit of a look at the cup and they all had... They love the Melbourne Cup. They love horses. And then someone said, hey, we could christen this baby with this cup. And I said, oh, I don't think so. And they said, yes, I've got no holy water. And they said, it doesn't matter, we've got Victoria Bitter. And I said, oh, I don't know if that's going to work and I'm not a priest. And then they said um, there was a coach captain, Northbound Coast catch captain there, and he was having a real good laugh because he was enjoying it as much as us. And the girl said, Christine said, he could be the um, man who, who who does the christening because he can bury us if we die on the road. And I said, well, I don't know. And they said, yeah, he's got those things on his sleeve. <laughs> so anyhow, he laughed a bit and he said, oh, the boss wants my job anyhow, so I might as well do it. And um, he came over there and this little, he's about nine months old, the little baby was, and he was blessing everyone in the world. And this is for Kerry Packer and all the stockmen and the drovers boys and for everyone in the world got a mention. And then he said, I hereby christen this baby. And then he said, what do you want to call him? And they said, Rogan Josh. That Rogan Josh's um, grandfather had been, who is now um, passed, um, Farlap Dixon from the Newcastle Water Station. And we didn't use Victoria Bitter. I actually had some Moe champagne. So we filled the cup up with that and baptised little Rogan Josh with Moe champagne under a big tree at um, opposite the pub at Mataranka, it was. That's extraordinary. So um, it was lovely, and then we went and told the priest in Darwin when we got back, and he said, oh, "He said we can't register it, but we could call it a naming ceremony." And uh, Rogan Josh, he'd be twenty years of age now. 
I think he's a little bit older. He might be 20, 21, nearly. Right. I suppose he was about nine months old then. Yeah, and uh, yeah. has he been able to track as to where where he went with family or where he did you find out at all where, where yeah, is he? Yeah, I, I um, have done a lot of teaching up there. I know a lot of the, the families and I know where he is. And um, he's on his other mother and that's cool. Oh, that's good. That's good. That's good to hear. So uh, you're now an ambassador uh, for the Melbourne Cup, as I am too. We travel with the Cup, and it's it's marvellous to get out and tell the story and take the Cup to uh, every part of Australia and others travel it to to different parts of the world. It's uh, it's extraordinary the magnetism of this trophy, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's um, it is. It's a really really good thing we do because you know, like there was that whole thing that we won the Cup, but it was all about socialites and rich people and you know that was my um, whole thing about being um, a woman I was the second and still am the second single owner woman of a, a Melbourne Cup and um, the uh, whole idea that it wasn't because it was called the Melbourne Cup it wasn't a Melbourne Cup and you know the better stories that came out of our journey going home the christening was one of the lovely events but the number of people that came out and said to us, you know, what I'm going to tell you what this cup means to us as a, mm. an Australian icon. And it was really, really moving. And, and you know, it's not just a, um, a Melbourne uh, event. It's an Australian um, claim to an identity that happens to take place in Melbourne. And once they started taking the cup on the road, they then started reaching out in the right direction to the um, mag- magnanimity of that cup and, mm. and that event and how it, you know, identified Australians as Australians. Well, the Cup's in its 17th year of touring, uh, the Melbourne Cup Tour, as we know. You you were going back 20 years ago, so you were the catalyst of, of creating, you didn't know at the time, of the Melbourne Cup Tour and the, the, the Cup going to all parts of Australia and now the world. So that's another great thing that came out of this, uh, yes, this extraordinary absolutely. victory. Yeah. And that is true. It was our journey that sort of um, was the seed to the idea. But before we did it in Australia, I did 14 con- countries around the world with, um, you know, taking the Cup overseas. And that was sort of a really big catalyst of bringing the, the, um, the overseas horses more fully into acceptance and the identity of the race. I've done an awful lot of travel with it. And, you know, another good thing is I'm um, the uh, patron of women in racing on the Gold Coast, you know. I'm just a teacher, but I get to go and talk to, you know, these amazing women and, and this whole idea of racing as an identity for women. I love the tale. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks very much. I'll see you later. On RSN 927, we're celebrating the history of the Melbourne Cup, Australia's greatest race. Welcome back to the history of the Melbourne Cup, the second part of this morning's program, and I've been dying to talk to Sheila Laxon, first female to train the winner of the Melbourne Cup. Or was she? A little bit of history on this. Sheila, good morning. Good morning, Brian. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Now, we've just got to go back to 1938 and a horse called Catalogue, and you'd know this story about Hedwick Granny McDonald. Absolutely. And, and what a story and what a sign of uh, how times change as years go by. 
We're talking about a horse called Catalog who won the Melbourne Cup, an eight-year-old, uh, one of the oldest to win the, the great race back in 1938. And uh, Granny, as she was known, Granny McDonald in New Zealand, trained the horse. But when she uh, and the Connections wanted to bring the horse across for the Melbourne Cup that particular year, she was banned from training because Victorian racing, uh, under the jurisdiction of the VRC, would not allow a female to train a horse. There you go. <laughs> there you go. And, and how long ago did they withdraw the white line? Uh, <laughs> back in about the late 70s for memory. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so um, Hedwick, or Granny as she was known, um, couldn't t- train this horse. It came here. It sort of ran in the Coogee Handicap at Caulfield on lead-up race and ran sort of fairly poorly and didn't show any form at all until I think it was the Hotham Handicap on Derby Day. But the training had to go under the, the banner of her husband, Alan. So Alan McDonald, <coughs> pardon me, in 1938, is credited as the trainer of Catalogue. But in actual fact, the New Zealand Prime Minister of the time sent a... Um, a telegram to congratulate Granny McDonald as being the first woman to train the Melbourne Cup winner. So she's still recognised back home, and so she should be. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. You know, that's um, New Zealand going to the forefront of uh, whatever's coming up in first place again. Yeah, they were. You've got a female PM, and, of course, we have uh, Amanda Elliott heading up the VRC. So what an amazing, you know, 70, 80 years on how things have changed. That's in the past. Let's talk about your wonderful mare in 2001, Ethereal. When you reflect back um, coming to Australia, but you would have come here with your husband, Laurie, for the uh, the Cup uh, in the year of Empire Rose, 1988? Eight, yes, that's right. I did. I, I flew in on the red-eye flight because I saw her win the McKinnon Cup and so, so extraordinarily, I thought, I've got to be there. Mm. And uh, jumped on the early morning flight and uh, Julie arrived. And your your background, of course, has always been with uh, with horses. You came from around the Cambridge, the thoroughbred territory of uh, the wonderful part of New Zealand, which is uh, globally recognised as the finest uh, around the world. Um, what about sort of as a kid, were you ponies and then sort of equestrian, uh, the, the way that uh, a lot of uh, people start out? Yes, yes. Um, you know, I was riding before I can even remember riding. I've got photos of me very, very little on, on quite a big, big horse um, and, and went into show jumping, loved all the pony club things, represented our, our club in the Prince Philip Cup games and all that sort of thing. So really was full swing into the equestrian world in England um, and actually ended up representing England in a junior show jumping team in France. So uh, was a mad keen show jump rider. But sort of came into the racing game because of association with other people and, you know, really, really wanted to become a, a jockey, um, a female jockey somewhere and applied for an amateur licence in England and um, I could have got that probably, but the opportunity to ride over there would have been so hard. Went to Cyprus chasing the same dream and eventually headed back to New Zealand um, to, to see if I could do, you know, fulfil my dreams and become a jockey. If I remember rightly, you were born in Devon, around the Devon district. Is that right in the UK? A bit further north, uh, Pontypree than Wales. Somewhere ah, world sheet. Yeah. World sheet. Same as Tommy Jones. <laughs> <laughs> and you had a licence, actually, to drive a bus. I did, indeed. I, I did. Yeah. Double-decker bus. <laughs> That's right. And also was the third, third woman in England to get a, 
um, HGV Class 1 licence, so could drive anything on the road. Oh, that's amazing. Well, you'd handle the big floods pretty well, I'm sure. So th- so then growing up, um, the, as we say later in life, growing up through uh, through New Zealand around Cambridge and then pursuing, did you act, You actually did ride, did you ride point to point or what, what did you do in New Zealand? No, I didn't ride point to point. Um, I, I did jump over a point to point fence on my pony and it was huge. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I, never, I never rode point to point. I actually rode in my first sort of point to point in New Zealand um, and in Kenny Brown's place mm-hmm. and uh, on a horse called Silver Wraith, which you may re- remember, he was um, he, he was the horse of the three-year-old of the year when he won the, after he won the Easter Handicap. Um, and he went on to become a beautiful event show jumping horse. And you had a few tumbles. I recall one saw you in a coma for a week. Uh, so you, you finished up battered and bruised on several occasions, but you had tremendous tenacity to get up and get going again. Yes, and that was the, one of the most amazing stories um, that was followed in the Melbourne Cup. That ten years prior to that, I'd I'd been um, knocked unconscious and in a coma for eight days, and woke up in a um, in a home for the people that uh, don't really see things as they are. And it was it was a very confronting experience because I knew exactly where I was and what I was doing, but I couldn't speak and I couldn't write or anything like that to communicate with anybody that I was okay upstairs, but I just couldn't. Let anybody know, and uh, so so ten years from then to to go from that state to you know training a horse school like ethereal was was just a incredible impetuous for all those people in that same position. Oh, amazing, that's the story is incredible. So when did you uh, take out your license? I note that ethereal had its first start in August of two thousand. Uh, was it much earlier than that? Because your training, Ethereal was under the ownership, of course, of two of the biggest breeders uh, at the time in New Zealand, uh, in Peter and Philip Vella, from a, a wonderful mare called Roman Conti, who they raced with enormous success by rhythm. So how did that eventuate? Well, I actually broke Roman Conti in and, uh, and rode her all the way through and she, she won the Hong Kong Cup. And then I broke her daughter in and I just absolutely loved her. She wasn't much to look at. And she had quite an offset knee, but she was just such a intelligent horse. You know, she knew what she wanted to ask her to do and um, was one of the better horses I've ever broken in. And I really pleaded with Peter to let me train her because I felt she'd be better out in a paddock environment because of her, her legs. Um, and eventually he, he let me let me go and, and train her, which I was thrilled to, to do for him. And she finally won a maiden at Pukahoe on the 14th of February uh, 2001. Uh, she got up to win by a nose that day with uh, young Colette aboard. Um, and then a win at Hastings in March on two occasions, a, a class one and then a restricted three-year-old set weight penalty race. So all of a sudden the dots were starting to join three in a row through February, March of 2001. You knew that you had something a little bit special? Absolutely. And, and that's an extraordinary thing. You know, she'd had seven starts as a maiden and couldn't win a maiden and then in the next 14 start she's won five group ones and um five million so that's, that's telling owners don't give up no, how <laughs> true win a maiden first up. then she got to the uh, the major grade in april she ran uh fifth in the uh, oak start and then on the cuddle stakes of group three both group threes fifth again and then the trip across to queensland in the winter of uh, uh may june of 2001 uh, tell me, tell me about that story of travelling over. Wasn't there a, a big contingent of animals on that particular flight? You told me about it once. 
Oh, that was another flight um, when the plane ran out of, nearly ran out of fuel. Um, that was actually another flight where uh, where Ben Isabel was on, who went on to win the Grand Prix um, after staying a week in Sydney, in, in not in training uh, in a training place. But um, no, that was a, that was an extraordinary story. That one. So you, um, yeah, yeah, it was late May when you got there for the Doombin Roses. Yes, it was. We were, we were actually planning to come over for the Grand Prix, and um, the plane. Actually, we got up to the airport and the plane never arrived. So we went back home and then we had to rethink because she hadn't won enough money to definitely get a start in the Oaks. Um, and the only option was to run in the Roses the week prior to the Oaks to see if we could get some more money on board. And I'd never backed her up before because of her knees. So it was a bit of a, a gamble. But anyway, we had to do it to see if we could. And she duly won it. Um, and then a week later was ready to go to the Oaks. And incredibly enough, she pulled up so well after that Doom and Roses run. It was, um, you know, it's really exciting to go into the Oaks with um, not a lot of hope, but just keeping our fingers crossed. Yeah, that, that was a great effort, as you say, backing up in seven days from the 25th of May to the 2nd of June from the Roses there at Doombin to Eagle Farm and the Group 1, the Queensland Oaks 2400. And you beat Tempest Morn in a photo finish gaze filly by a half head, and there was a neck then to Alterio in third placing. So after those two terrific wins in Queensland to the paddock, and then uh, the first up run was mid-September back at Pukahoe, back home in New Zealand. Was the plan then to head towards uh, the spring of Melbourne? Um, no, not really. Um, they always wanted to go for the for the BMW. We we were hoping that um, we we would uh, go for the Grand Prix, uh, the I'm sorry, Art Triomphe. Um, but we ended up just going for the Grand Prix, uh, the the um, BMW in the in the autumn, and that was when they decided to to spell her. Uh, so uh, she finally, in the spring of uh, Melbourne, uh, 2001, in October, she ran third to a great one in Northerly and Shogun Lodge, two uh, terrific horses in the Yolumba that was on Caulfield Guineas Day, and then the Caulfield Cup on the 20th of October. Sky Heights was in the race. Uh, your mare was uh, $8 equal favourite. Sky Heights right in the market. Celestial show. It was interesting to when you reflect back on the names of the horses that ran one, two, three in that Caulfield Cup. Ethereal, Sky Heights and Celestial show. There was, there were some signals there, weren't there, when, when we reflect back? Absolutely. All heavenly sent, weren't they? <laughs> yeah, they were heavenly sent. And it was a great race, a, a fabulous race. And, and your mare just kept coming to win by a nose. Um, that must have been fantastic to win a Caulfield Cup, you know, one of the, the great races of Australian racing at the highest level. Absolutely. And, and you know, when you win the three-year-old classics, it's it's really hard for those horses to compete against the, the proven horses, you know, in the next following years. And for her to do what she did on that day, and honestly, she was only half fit because she didn't do well when she came over to Australia. And I had to be really light on her work because she wasn't eating that well. So it was sheer tenacity that got her to the line that day. And uh, Sheila, John Simons was training at Macedon Lodge, which is now the, the home of uh, the, the racing operation of Lloyd Williams. Um, so from the Caulfield Cup, the 20th of October, the Melbourne Cup was the 6th of November. After the Caulfield Cup, was there an intention to continue on for the Melbourne Cup? No, not at all. They were, they were going to go up to Hong Kong for the, um, the race her mother won, the Hong Kong Cup. And Peter wasn't that keen on having a, a broodmare in his paddock that had won the Melbourne Cup because I suppose as a, a person who buys horses, you know, they don't want that day of staying 
blood in in their racehorses, mm-hmm. um, and he felt that it probably wouldn't be to her credit to to compete in a race like that. Uh, but now you ask him about it, and he said it's the best race he's ever won. You know, he, <laughs> it was just so extraordinary. Um, and and as I say, they, at the time they didn't want to run in it, and even on the morning they weren't going to run run in it when it rained. So uh, again, very lucky all the way through. So you actually contemplated what scratching on Melbourne Cup morning? Well, I didn't. I, did, I wasn't aware that they walked the track and they had a look at it, and because of the rain, they they were discussing scratching her that morning. Oh, gee. Uh, this is the Melbourne Cup 2001, a field of 22, and she was well in the market, uh, this mare, and she was going for the the marvellous double of the Caulfield Cup and the Melbourne Cup. Very few horses can do it. Here's Ethereal in 2001. Followed by Marion Bard near the inside, give the slip, has rolled back to the fence and here comes Ethereal. Ethereal starting to wear down, give the slip, they've got it between them. The New Zealand mare coming home like a train, Ethereal's going for the double, give the slip, grabbed by Ethereal. Ethereal going home better in the cup and Ethereal wins the Melbourne Cup and neck on the line to give the slip. Great race, Uh, wonderful to hear that race again I'm sure. I could hear it every day of the week and never get sick of it. <laughs> I remember that was me. <laughs> uh, how did you celebrate after the Melbourne Cup? Oh, well, we we um, we got a table at uh, Silks, and uh, we had you know quite a, a crowd to celebrate with us. You know, Lee Freeman was there, and Brent Thompson, who was quite you know he took a big part in in where Ethereal went to be trained when we came to Australia, and. Um, he, he was involved with walking the course and making the final decision about whether we start or not on, on the day. So um, it was great to go there and, and enjoy with people who had sort of paved the way for her to do what she did. And you were recognised then on that particular day as the first female, uh, and I, I don't want to keep harping on this, but it, <laughs> it was an historic event that you were then recognised as the first uh, to, to train a Melbourne Cup winner. So... You know, um, that's with you for life, isn't it? It's that's something special. Oh, very special, you know, to be there officially, officially <laughs> the first uh, female to win the training uh, the Melbourne Cup with, um, you know, it says it all. It's just uh, you've achieved something that uh, you're the first one to achieve in that aspect. So, you know, you, you, that can never be taken away from you, whatever happens in the, from there on in. And to train the double is uh, is unique. And then back in the autumn, uh, one run at Tarapa, in the Waikato draft over there, and then back to Australia, a run in the St George, a fifth in the Australian Cup to uh, Old Comrade. But then you got that BMW on the 23rd of March in 2002, and the horse again in a photo finish beat Universal Prince. So you you got that race that you'd planned a long time ago for. Yes, that's right. And uh, to me, that's always been her best run because to come from where she did in the straight after Universal Prince came past and, and pushed her back in, you know, no horse could do what she did that day. It was just such tenacity. And three of her Group 1 races were just by that nostril. Mm. And, and she knew where the line was and would just absolutely do everything to get there. And it's very few horses that have got that real desire to, to beat everything else like she did. And her mother did too. I just remember too coming back uh, when you're coming, when the horse, the mare was coming back with Scotty Seymour aboard after the Melbourne Cup down the long ra- race down where the roses are. And uh, I think someone threw a streamer across in front of uh, your mare returning after the Melbourne Cup and she took fright and Scotty came off. So, and I think she may have stood in his toe or something. And there was a shot of Scotty Seymour leading alongside the mare, limping with, after the most magnificent victory of his, his whole career. 
Yes, that was most unfortunate because he was in a lot of pain. Yeah. And, you know, the moment he should be enjoying, he was just thinking he'd broken his leg. Oh. And um, it was just in the most unfortunate situation. And those things happen with horses, you know. Um, everybody gets carried away with their four at the moment and, and throw streamers like that. And, of course, um, yeah. in actual fact, I think it was the, the Clark of the Courses horse that was more spooked by it and, and actually caused the accident to happen too. So oh, it was just uh, those... Dangerous horses, things horses. Yeah, horses are dangerous, you're right. Sheila, um, people talk about the Melbourne Cup changing their life. We hear the jockeys and the trainers say it, but surely, uh, you know, you've experienced it. So uh, it must be extraordinary to, to go through something like that. And, and it's there for life, isn't it? It is indeed, and it's, uh, you know, it's just such an incredible thing to happen. And, and as everybody says who's won it, it has changed their lives. And you wouldn't think that a horse race could have that effect on, on yourself. Um, but it does. It opens a lot of gates, and you, you know, you your life t- changes direction totally. Otherwise, I would still be farming in New Zealand <laughs> um, and and uh, not living in Australia. And that, that sort of thing, you know, you, the, the the gates are open, and it's your choice where you, where you want to go. But um, I've taken every gate at full gallop and landed up where I've landed. But it's been fantastic. It's been great to have the opportunity and. Uh, now, what a wonderful race the Lexus Melbourne Cup is going to be this year. You know, you've got all the overseas horses coming to compete in it. It's, it's a very, very strong race worldwide now, and, and it's just been elevated there because of the perseverance of the, um, you know, all the people that are associated with it. It's just, uh, I'll take my hat off to them. They just keep working hard at it. Yes, I agree. And uh, like myself, you're an ambassador for the Cup, and it's not hard to talk about the Melbourne Cup and take the Melbourne Cup on tour. Uh, you feel such a part of it, but you're you're so ingrained now in the uh, in the roll call of the great horses that have won. Good luck to you. Good luck to John. Your uh, John Simon's your partner. I know the training partnership's going well up there at uh, Caloundra. Um, our best to Johnny, and and thanks so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Brian, and it's great to talk about it. I could talk about it all day. <laughs> this has been the history of the Melbourne Cup. Six till seven Sunday mornings, every Sunday until Cup Day on RSN, where the Spring Racing Carnival happens later on podcast.